I started to teach myself how to play chess. Uh, I mean, I knew how to play it, but I knew how to play it like I know how to play, like, sorry, right? So like, I knew, like, the moves and shit, but I don't know anything. So I Googled, I'm like, best chess book beginner, and it came up with um, Bobby Fisher teaches chess or teaches you chess. And it's like a little paperback book, and it's thick. And I'm like, I bought it at Green Apple. Um, they had it in stock. And uh, I get in it, and I, they hand it to me. I'm like, I'm like, shit. I'm like, I'm about to read like a 300-plus page paperback on chess. Yeah, okay, fuck. So I open it, and immediately I'm like, oh, shit. Okay, this is not at all what I thought it is. And it's like, for anyone who doesn't know Bobby Fischer, Bobby, they made a movie out of him. Shit, I in the nineties, I think. I, I think I saw it when I was a kid, but he was like a chess prodigy, um, and you know he was probably all fucked up. But anyways, he he was one of like the best. Gary Kasparov, another guy, he wrote a great book called um, "How Life Imitates Chess." And now, actually, you know what? Shit, now that I'm doing chess, I might revisit that book. But yeah, anyways, so I got the Bobby Fischer book, and it's just. It's just diagrams. He's teaching you know, from the very, very basic beginner and then throughout. And then it's dope because when you get to the end of the last page, every other page is backwards. So when you get to the last page of the book, you're supposed to turn it around and then start reading it that way. So that way you have a whole another set of you know, pages. But it's just diagrams and it's, you know, it's very dry. It's just quick little you know, sentences and then arrows and whatever. So I hop on chess.com. And that was a mistake. <laughs> and chess.com for people, you know, for people who don't know, it's a, you know, it's a website. Um, <laughs> duh. And it links you up with random people around the world. And I think there's a million people playing at any given time. So, and they give you points. So you start off, you know, at whatever 500 level, I think. And if you keep winning, you go up. If you keep losing, you go down. Well, I lost three games in a row. And I got, like... <laughs> I wasn't pissed, but man, it reminded me of just being new at something. You know, being new at something sucks a lot. You know, when I was new at guitar, it sucked. When I was trying to write at the very beginning to this day, almost four years later, it still sucks being a beginner. Um, I guess it's kind of hard to remember being a beginner reader, right? Or whatever. But like anything you fucking do that's new, and that you want to get good at, you're going to suck at. And it's really frustrating. It's super frustrating. Um, and then I went on YouTube. I watched a couple of like, you know, opening chess moves. And then I won a game. And that, <laughs> I, I literally jumped out of my chair when I won. I was so excited because I already lost about four hours of my night reading this book examining the chessboard, playing some games, and it, it, it's just, now I want to go home and just play chess. Um, but it, it was more about, like, reflecting on the fact of how frustrated and pissed off I was getting when I lost. That's why I stopped playing golf. <laughs> because I was spending a lot of money on something I wasn't that good at, and I was never going to be able to get really good at Unless I had a lot more money and a lot more time. And with chess, it was more about, well, A, it's free. And all, but B, like I said earlier, 
you know, the Gary Kasparov book, How Life Imitates Chess. It, it really does. Because chess really is, in a way, it's, it's war and it's strategy. Fuck, man. Uh, all right. Yeah, chess, it, it's everything. It's seeing the next move. It's seeing five moves ahead. It's seeing the moves that, you know, your opponent is going to make. Um, and yeah, and so I'm just fucking, I'm stoked on this. I'm stoked on trying to find something new, having found something new and s- something to suck at, a new thing to suck at. Um, but uh, yeah, that's really just what it is. Um, chess is dope. I'm not good at it. And I will let people know if I get any better at it. Oh, yeah. And find me on chess.com. Uh, it's Fly Famous Forbin. F-O-R-B-I-N. And uh, always, more importantly, <laughs> check us out on Instagram, Writing Friction, and Twitter Friction Writing. And please, please, please just share. Um, it's getting, you know, it's, it's growing. So it's, it's dope. But uh, yeah, all right, till next one. Thanks. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Writing Friction. And as always, today's guest is pretty cool. Everyone say hello to Bob Lefsets. How are you, Bob? I'm doing okay. Yeah, you bunkering down. Are you in Southern California still? I'm in Southern California. Normally, I go to Colorado pretty much for the whole month of December, but mm-hmm. I don't want to get COVID-19. I've got a pre-existing condition, and I'm in the age group, so I'm taking quarantining very seriously. It's pretty unbelievable. I mean, obviously, you, for people who don't know, Bob is uh, coming from the music world, um, and right now we're during COVID, and there's no concerts. Um, normally, I'd be on, what is it? It's almost December. I'd be going to Madison Square Garden right now to be seeing fish for four nights. Um, that's right. typically what I'd be doing, but that's not what life is right now. Are you in Santa Monica area? You've been there for a long no, time. I, I've right? been in Santa Monica for 40 years. I moved uh, to Sherman Oaks, which doesn't have the creds. I'm up in the hills in, uh, in L.A. But you're an no East Coast guy. Santa Monica. You're East what? Coast originally. Oh, yeah. I grew up in the East Coast. Grew up in Connecticut. Went to college in Vermont. Then I was a starving freestyle skier in Utah. Then I went to law school in L.A. I've been in L.A. since the 70s, mid-70s. Okay. I'm from Jersey originally, but I moved to SF in 2011 because I joined a band that would be my touring life for like five or six years. But I've been in SF ever since. Kind of bring people up to speed. Um, You worked originally... In as entertainment lawyer before you started no, writing no, your letter, well, I would not say that. I mean, let's let's go back. Yeah, you uh, correct me. The, 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 you know, I was a big skier. I went to Middlebury College. I went for three reasons: a, it was co-ed; b, it's beautiful campus to this day. But it also had its own ski area. I'm sure I skied more at Middlebury than any other student there. <laughs> and the first year I was at Middlebury, phenomenal conditions. And the next three years got worse and worse. And I wanted to do more skiing. And therefore, I moved to Salt Lake City, uh, Little Cottonwood Canyon, which is Alton Snowbird, has the best snow in the world. That's well acknowledged. The uh, moisture is pulled out by the Great Salt Lake. 
And what I did not know when I moved there, I moved there because it's got the most guaranteed snow in America. <laughs> it was the epicenter of freestyle skiing. I got involved with those people. Uh, I choked in competition. And then I was <laughs> going to take a couple of years to get past, because I ski with these people all day. Yeah, yeah. Day, the world champion, whatever. And I said, well, you know, I could spend a couple of years doing that. And, you know, where's that going to lead me? Secondly, a lot of people in the ski world end up not skiing because you can't make that much money unless you're at the absolute ep mm -hmm. peak of being a professional skier. And many people stop skiing completely. And I said, that's not who I want to be. My father always said he would pay for law school. The first time I signed up for the LSATs, my friends knocked on my college dorm room door and said, you're not taking the LSAT. And I said, you're right. And we went to Montreal. Uh, had you had plans I, to be a lawyer your whole life? Was that something you always wanted yeah, to do? I, you, know, I, I, you know, I'm an upper, well, it wasn't at the time, I'm a middle-class Jew. Okay. Here. And your parents, you know, always want you to be a professional and doctor or lawyer. I was not the scientific type. So you heard that from day one and your parent, it's very different from today. <laughs> um, first and foremost, if you were not educated at a collegiate level, you could make a living. You could live on minimum wage. You can't do that anymore. Also, there wasn't this level of income inequality. Now, if you grew up in the 60s, which I did, it was all about finding yourself testing limits, and many people did that. People don't do that at all today <laughs> because life is too hard. And if you are an educated person, you're looking for insurance. Whatever insurance a legal career might have been, that's almost secondary today to be working for the bank, et cetera. And as a result, a lot of the best and the brightest go to work in these soul-sucking professions. You know, Amor Tals has really got a good reputation now. He started as a banker. Mm -hmm. his, writer, you know, his writing teacher at uh, Yale, because uh, you know, I heard him speak once at somebody's house, and you know, said, hey, you're really good. He said, no, no, I got to go to the bank. So in any event... Uh, I went to law school because I'd had the worst case of mononucleosis. Literally, it lasted six months. And uh, my father said he would pay for it. It was terrible. I hated it. But two things happened. One, it was the worst year in history for snow in Salt Lake City. No one ever believed me, but there was another bad year in 11-12. And then they referenced this. This is 76-77. So when I called my friends in Utah, I said, we're going home. There's no <laughs> snow. This is before snowmaking. And then I fell in with a woman, and that carried me through law school. And I wanted to pass the bar because I'm the type of person who finishes stuff. But I never had an intention to practice law. At the time, the record companies were run by lawyers. That is not the case at this particular moment. And I figured this would be a good background. My father was a real estate appraiser who also owned a uh, liquor store. You know, I had no connections in this particular world. I did the music practice, world. Yes. I did practice law a, a little bit, but I haven't practiced law for decades. I still can if I want to, but. But I, I mean, but growing up, but growing up, I mean, you obviously were a music fan, and obviously, I'm assuming a fan of literature as well. Correct? I'm a voracious reader and mm -hmm. always have, been. always have it. So, do you remember? Always I mean, have it. I was, the, I was the kid from the Arrow Book Club who would uh, order six books. I'd go to the library, take out nine books. Mm -hmm. Always drive. What did you start library. off reading? I and mean, can you remember like the earliest thing? I mean, I no. I was born in 1987, so I start my reading began with R.L. Stein, the Goosebumps series. That was like my first steady reading. But obviously, you know, you're a different generation. What do you remember reading back, back then? Oh, God. 
how come I can't remember the uh, the name of this book? I can still still see the cover we have. The you know, Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel. I think what it's called, <laughs> something like that. And we didn't have all those series. So the series that I remember were like Beezus and Ramona, okay, Beverly Cleary stuff. And I read a lot of sports books. I would read anything and everything. And children's literature was not quite the thing it is today. But mm-hmm. Were you writing at that time? Because I, I heard you talking. Oh. In, in another, so you weren't doing any creative writing at all. You weren't doing no. any. I mean, I mean like when that. I was in first grade, no. Uh-huh. Well, I'm talking about going into high school and th- up through college. I mean, you know, okay. you're, you're bumming around uh, skiing. You know, I, was you? In, I was in school in the 60s in a middle-class suburb, different from today. There was enough money to pay for paper for the Mimeo machine. And uh, we had some very creative teachers. Uh, when I was a sophomore, Mrs. Hurley, she took us to plays in New York City. I grew up 50 miles from New York City. She took us to see plays. She took us to see Janice Ian who had a big song called Society's Child. This was long before at 17 in what is now David Geffen Hall. At the time was Philharmonic Hall. In between, it was Avery Fisher Hall uh, in New York. And uh, it really kind of comes down to this one thing. A friend of mine was the editor of the school newspaper. Well, a friend was an editor of school of the newspaper when I was a junior, and I wrote sports stuff. But a different friend became editor of the school newspaper when I was a, a senior in high school. And this is the 60s, so it's about testing limits. There were even underground newspapers in high school. So um, in any event, the Crimson Crier, it was then Andrew Ward High School, in uh, now called Fairfield Ward in Fairfield, Connecticut. And people may or may not remember, but... I guess most people know there was the whole Paul is dead thing. Sure. Courtney, that was in the fall of 1969. And we were sitting around laughing, talking about, well, what if the headmaster, it was a public high school, but they called the principal. I mean, did people think that was bullshit when it was happening? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, of course. But but, uh, we laughed about it. You know, you sit around with your friends. Yeah, of course. You know, Peterson, you know, was fake. And I wrote something about it. And it was front page, was usually successful. And I wrote something else. <clears throat> and uh, that was the beginning. It's interesting because uh, the um, I wanted to go to Middlebury once again. You know, I you know I went to college because my parents told me to. I was not excited about going to college. I didn't necessarily want to learn like anything. Yeah. I applied early decision, and I filled out the form straightforwardly, and I did not get in. I knew I could always go to Boston University because my mother went there. And my my dad went, went there. there. Okay. And my sister did not get in. My older sister did not get into the college of her choice. So at this point, I just wrote whatever I wanted. Yeah. So I would, you know, I would f- color out, you know, now everything's via computer. But back yeah. then when you had to literally fill out these forms, you know, they'd say, what magazines do you rate? You know, I read, and to this day, I read more magazines than anybody I've ever met. It's like, I, I would use, you know, I would go to the side of the application and I would send these articles. And I remember, God, I can make these stories so long. I'll try not to. I'll make it very short. Uh, as we, you know, I used that stuff. My irreverent personality got me into Columbia. Mm-hmm. I did not go to Columbia for two reasons. One, because a guy I had been on a summer program with, he wanted me to room with him, and I didn't. And I didn't see how I could say no. <laughs> Secondly, I'm a big skier. 
Okay. What I did not know about Middlebury College, you know, granted, I went at this point, I started in 1970, very traditional. Yeah. Now, one advantage was 45% of the people were prep school kids. Yeah. And growing up in a melting pot suburb, I had not interacted with wealthy people. Definitely that not. taught me how to interact with wealthy people. And as one gets successful in the entertainment business, you run into a lot of household names and powerful and rich people. That helped. I didn't get uptight. Um, but they have a very conservative upbringing and the school was very traditional and I chafed at that. The funny thing is moving to LA, I have friends went to UCLA. They're exactly like me. Yeah. You know, I had more records than anybody else. Yeah. I did. We did have, they now call J term. We had 414 January took a different subject and I did convince them to let me teach us, uh, a, um, class about rock music which well, I had did. the idea of moving to los angeles always been in your head i mean you're talking about a time well, when well, that, well, let me go through yeah. this let me go through this because i can answer that question but okay. I want, you're getting to the writing thing and this is critical yeah okay and uh so if you go to a small place like middlebury college not a big department there's one teacher in certain departments like i remember psychology was a hip subject there was one teacher everybody said that teacher sucks don't take psychology and i never yeah. did the writing courses were taught by this guy, John Claggett, who wrote sea stories poorly. And I would write, and for those of us who've seen, those seen the producer's movie, it would be like springtime for Hitler. People's <laughs> jaws would drop. Most definitely. And then I finally wrote something about going to see an Alice Cooper concert in 1972. Oh, yeah. And uh, the teacher said, that was good. Finally said something good. And he said, but it needed a twist. A twist. This is 1972. The new journalism is already over. Forget had he it. Broke I never. By then? What had Alice broke by then? I was a huge Alice Cooper fan. If you want to talk Alice Cooper, no I one's mean... going to listen. <laughs> no book people are going to listen to this podcast by the time I get through. Alice Cooper was a joke. He had two yeah. albums on Frank Zappa's label. Yeah. Then. He, uh, pretty's for you and easy action. He made it. They then got this guy, Bob Ezrin, who was famous for a number of things, but he certainly <laughs> famous for producing, um, the Alice Cooper records, Pink uh, Floyd. kiss destroyer and Pink Floyd, the wall Pink fish. Uh, yes. Among many other things. And, uh, he did a record with a third record, love it to death. And they had this song. I'm 18, which was good. Okay, but you're still not going to buy an Alice Cooper record. No. You would read about it at Rolling Stone. Yeah. And then, and it's interesting because some of these people have legends far exceeding the reality <laughs> of the time. I was really addicted to Rolling Stone. I would go to college. You got to study hard at a place like Middlebury, which I tried my best not to do. But I would read Rolling Stone cover to cover. It would come on Tuesday every other week. And I would try to finish my all my studying by Tuesday, Wednesday at the latest, so I could read Rolling Stone. And in the review section, there was a boxed-off review, which meant it was important, by this album, by this act Alice Cooper called Killer. It was written by Lester Bangs. Mm -hmm. He was not known as some great person like he was before. People are not going to... There's a lot of deep rock history. But, uh, in, the it's, fall, it's not a, but yeah. in the fall of 69, okay, <laughs> there was something called The Great White Wonder. It was a hoax in Rolling Stone, okay? So they were, all these legendary people were going to have this rock concert in the wake of Woodstock. Turned out to be a hoax. So when I read this review, I said, this is a hoax. Yeah. But I'm going to buy the record just to see. 
you drop the needle on that record. The song is called Under My Wheels. You're closed immediately. Uh-huh. So I was into it from then, and I had seen the tour. This was before. He really broke with the next album. Uh, his next album, School's Out, and then Billion Dollar Babies, I think is how it went. Yeah. Um, so you write this Alice Cooper piece. I mean, this is the first time you've written something like that, right? I mean, this was kind of your first foray into writing what would become kind of your technique? No, you no, do no, with no. Well, you know, if you go to a place like Middlebury College, there are no objective tests. Yeah. No fill in the blanks, no yeah. A, B, C, D. Yeah. You are writing papers for every class, yeah. multiple papers. So it wasn't like I never wrote anything. Obviously but, not. But those are very straightforward. My style was very close to my style today. It's evolved a little bit. Okay. You know, I can get on my high horse and really alienate all your audience right now. I don't know whether I should do it now or whether I should do it later because I don't do it how anybody else does it. You don't. You know, they, and, well, but that's what's interesting. I mean, again, you know, to turn the camera on to me, I got introduced to you because I am one of the people you were writing for, right? I'm not some big name fucking producer. I'm not some TikTok guy. I'm the dude who's in the van driving to the clubs and trying to believe in some dream that might still exist, right? So when I became privy to you, you were writing shit that was just straightforward, that anyone could digest. You weren't bullshitting anyone. You know, you say it yourself all the time. There's too much bullshit out there. Um, the world's full of a lot of crap and you kind of were starting to break it down. So when you say you kind of, your style started back then, you know, what kind of pushed you over the edge? Did you know what, why did you stop being a lawyer? Do you remember writing that first letter? Um, I mean, you know, questions like these, talk you know, about I the- can answer these questions in 15 seconds or if you, I'm going to go a little bit longer, please do. These are, these are crucial things. Yeah. I never wrote another thing in college. Mm-hmm. My dream at that point had to been to move to San Francisco and write for Rolling Stone. It wasn't something I was active about. It's yeah. like in the back of my mind, that's when Rolling Stone was still in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Needless to say, after that sophomore experience, I never wrote another thing. So if that's 1972, in 1984... I'm working for this company, Sanctuary Music, which has been through a few iterations since then, but it's always managed Iron Maiden. I was going to say they they were the genesis of Iron Maiden, yeah. So, uh, and the same guy, Rod Smallwood, yeah. still manages them. I ran the U.S. operation. Uh, Rod could only be in the U.S. certain limited time. He's got a partner, Andy Taylor, because of tax reasons. Mm-hmm. In any event, one of the big things at the time, since... Iron Maiden was the biggest selling act for capital throughout the world. Uh, Rod had a lot of power. And when you have a lot of power, we had this act wasp that I've been involved (laughs) in. That's how they were connected to sanctuary music. But you get to hire an independent publicity company. You would not want to use the people who are working for the label. All of this has changed a little bit, but let me roll with it. They would send these bios. The bios were horrific. I would always have to rewrite them. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that job did not last over a creative issue. I mean, just uh, editing. I mean, pure. I mean, you weren't rewriting the bio. You had to rewrite it. So terrible. That bad. Okay? Yeah, if yeah. you know, wow. There are a lot of <laughs> tangents here that may or may not be interesting to your audience. What most people don't realize is the only thing in the to me in the newspaper that's news, generally speaking, is hard news. 
Somebody shot somebody. There's a war. Everything else is placed by publicity agents. They pitch people and they put there. Okay. And they have these bios as information. Yeah. Now all the local uh, outlets are dying, but they would sometimes just copy the bio. Okay. So this has been a function of the music business ever since forever. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have to make it readable, but that job ended. Those jobs are very well paid. And after about a year and a half, I ran out of money. I worked on a couple of movies, et cetera. Then I went to see this job counselor. There's a legendary job seeking book called what color is your parachute? Turns out it has a workbook. I never knew that. And the job counselor says, here's this workbook, write six essays, brag about yourself. This is 12 years later. Okay. Actually, no, it's in 1986. So it's 14 years later. And I write those essays and I get back in touch with the fact that I like to write. Okay. I said, let me write some stuff and send it to magazines. And when the rejections come back, I go, wait a second. <laughs> this is just like the music business. You have to oh, know these people. God. These are not the people I That's know. That's something I really want to talk to you about. I'm a new writer. The publishing world and the record, they almost run parallel businesses from my end. It's a big conglomerate. You have agents, you have publisher, you know, you have all these things. And I didn't realize that until I, I published my first book in February. And, you know, my whole life I spent trying to get into, get a record deal. And it was always the same thing. You know, you had to submit the press kits and, you know, I'm from like the early 2000s, you know, back then and up till now. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. You say that how, you know, there are similarities between these two businesses and maybe you could talk about that a little more. But yeah, so 1986, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 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 I could talk about that a lot. That's part of what I'm going to write to talk about. It's probably going to piss people off. But let me <laughs> finish this narrative. Uh, when the rejections come back, I say, well, you know, you got to know these people. Yeah. And I was reading a eating eating a hamburger at a place called Flaky Jake's at Pico and Sepulveda. It's no longer a hamburger joint now. It's various retail establishments. And I'm reading Billboard, which has been up and down. Now it's really down again. It yeah. went up a little bit after I'm this particular moment with this guy, Timothy White. But it was terrible. And I'm reading. I go, this is terrible. I could do a better <laughs> job than this. And all of a sudden, a bell goes off in my brain. I said, wait a second, aren't there computers? You know, maybe I can actually do something. I had the idea. It's funny thinking about it all these years later. I went home, woke up my girlfriend. She said I should do it. But I didn't quite have the chutzpah. And then I said, I read this book about risking. I said, I'm going to do it. I had a credit card for being a lawyer with $5,000 credit because I was broke. Yeah. And I went and bought a Mac Plus. <laughs> this is uh, spring of 1982. Uh, six, excuse me. I immediately became fascinated with computers. That was not something I was ever interested in. I famously said, I'm not going to get a computer until you could talk to it, which you actually you can do today. <laughs> but it was incredibly powerful. And this is when Macs and PCs, it was a huge space in between. Yeah. I became fascinated. And uh, so I started the newsletter. I charged for it. Generally speaking, only the most successful people subscribe, the heads of all the labels. Well, can, I stop could... you? can I stop you there? Just sure. You had been working in this field for a decade prior before you started. No, 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 no. You were, I you didn't were graduate from law school until 1979. 
I worked in the movie and music business for the ensuing years, but I was not a well-known person. But you were, you were, you were around it well enough to want to write about it. Obviously you were there. Let me ask you again here, Michael, who's your audience? Uh, my audience, uh, at this point it's turning into, it's changing. Um, it keeps evolving to the point where I thought it was just going to be people who want to write books to now people who are just trying to find other ways to be creative and hearing you talk as a lawyer and then wanting to become a writer was similar to me as, you know, being a musician and wanting to become a writer. And it's weird because there's a lot of people out there who are listening to this podcast who are doing things that they don't want to do. And they want to start doing something else, whether it be writing, most of them are writers, um, a lot of musicians, but uh, yeah, that's who the audience seems to be. And I think the things you're saying are, you know, to me are interesting. I, I think they'll be motivational to the people hearing them too. Okay. How about people who are successful writers? Are they listening to this? I mean, everyone I've, oh yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, especially the authors I've been speaking with, uh, Phil Cly, you know, Joan Silver. I'm more, I'm more interested in the audience. Yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah. Let me get on my high horse. Yeah. Yeah. Get on uh, your high horse. Yeah. Whenever I speak, and I speak a lot professionally, the first when the wannabes talk to me, the very first thing I tell them is give up. Yeah. Music is not identical to book writing, but people have no fucking idea how difficult it is to be successful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's an old Don Henley song. The song's not that great, but the lyric is good. How bad do you want it? Not bad enough. I remember the first day of law school, the counselor comes in and they say, if you're here to be in the entertainment field, you should drop out right now. <laughs> I literally, I didn't want to go to begin with. I thought about dropping out. And then I said, turns out I'm the only person who needed to be in it that badly. And I can tell you, people, you want to have a house, you want to have a family, you want to have cars, you want to send your kids to college. Don't be in a creative field. Well, that's what you, it is it, almost impossible. In your podcast, Michael Conley, that's what you talk about. He talks about that too. Yeah, but his well, parents Michael Conley had a career as a writer. Before he was a yeah, journalist. No, yeah, his parents were that, used, yeah. that used to be a way to make a living as a yeah. writer. I know someone, a friend of mine's kid, got a, a master's in journalism, tried and you had to give up. There were no jobs. Yeah. People should not do this. <laughs> you should be a fan. Music is even harder. It's a little different. What people don't realize is this is kind of like, this is one of the things I like about music as opposed to TV or movies. I'm going to be really negative now. I'm going to turn off a lot of the audience because I, I am the, if you hear all this and you say at the end of the day, shit, that makes me, but I still have to do it. <laughs> fine. Okay. But when it comes to music, the people in it, about the most they can say is had a good beat and I could dance to it. Oh yeah. You put a five-year-old in front of a TV show. Okay. With prompting, they can do five or 10 minutes. Oh, the characters weren't believable. The story didn't make sense, etc. Everybody can write. They learn that in school. Okay. So they think they can be a writer. <laughs> Let me start with the primary. A. All of these factories, all of this stuff is complete horseshit. I read a lot, okay? And I tended not to read books, but my girlfriend bought me a Kindle in 2009 and now been reading voraciously, uh, mostly fiction there. Only on Kindle? 
I get, you know, nature of my life is I get sent a lot of books. I'd imagine. So if someone sends me a book, I'll read. The anti-Kindle thing, I mean, you don't have enough time for me to be angry and break enough norms. Let me get this straight. People are on their phone all day long. They're in front of their laptop or desktop, but they can't read a book mm -hmm. on a screen. Mm -hmm. Okay. I went to school. I remember lugging books back and forth. People don't even do that anymore. The kids that you think the kids today are going to be in physical books. I'm not talking about coffee table books, et cetera. If you know anything and people are so standoffish, they don't know is that the e-ink technology using a Kindle is such, it is harder to read a book on an iPad. My girlfriend does it, but with the, it's easier on the eyes. And you can, I remember somebody sent me a book. Very good. I can't remember the name right now, just recently about, uh, the uh, a woman who traces um, her family during World War II. He sends me the physical book. It's almost unreadable because the type is so damn small. Yeah, yeah. I'm used to a Kindle. And on a Kindle, you can change the type to whatever size you want. Mm -hmm. But because it doesn't understand, this is, you know, the publishing business is so small. And, you know, the music business, unfortunately, starting about 30 years ago, started to, you know, people started to wear suits, et cetera. It's a down and dirty street business where the book business, where there's a lot fewer zeros involved, it's about status, okay? And the money's less important. And so there's a lot of BS involved. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the end consumer, when I first got my Kindle, every book was under $10. It was a whim to buy a book. And that is exactly what, Bezos wanted to do. But no, no, there's a value in books, just like there was a value in records. We have to pay $14 for 10 songs. They raised the price. Now, a physical book can be the same price as a digital book. I don't like to be raped, okay, which is what they're doing to me. They could grow the audience mm -hmm. with digital books, but they won't. Well, it's so interesting. I bought, I bought a book today. Have you heard of this? Utopia? Absolutely. Have you, are you, okay. I'm so not I, a fan of, I'm not, I've read uh, Jacob DeZoe. I'm not a fan of David Mitchell. This will be my first book of his. The, problem, the thing is I picked up this book because it's about a band and I just finished my first novel about a rock and roll band. Albeit this takes place in a different time and era. Um, but what I wanted to ask you is I got this book because it was recommended to me by someone who knew I was writing about a band. You're probably getting shit all the time. People listen to this, read this, read that. How are you even divvying up your time at this point? How are you finding the time to read? How do you choose what? To okay. Wait, wait, I got to remember the exact name of this book. Yeah. Okay. You writing about a band. Yeah. This is the best book about bands. Unfortunately, it's out of print. Good. But I guarantee you can find it on eBay. <laughs> yeah, what's okay? it called? It's called The Wishbones. Okay. It's by Tom Parada. Okay. Tom Parada is a very famous writer. This is one of his very first books. Yeah, okay. As they get to the later stuff, it's more stylized. This is straightforward, really fucking good. Yeah, well, the book I'm writing, it's it's interesting. I, I'm basing it around a college band, you know, a one-hit wonder around the late 90s, early 2000s. But I kind of take you throughout that whole arch of a band. Um. I want to ask you though, uh, we were saying before this, how are, how are you choosing what to read now? I mean, or do you have, are you the kind, do you read, if you like an author, do you read all of their books? Life is precious. It is. I Reading takes a long very, time. I am very, very busy. There's not enough time in a day. Generally speaking, I don't trust any recommendations by any readers. 
whether it become music or books. People don't understand the concept of recommendation. It's not what you'd like. <laughs> when you recommend something, it's a responsibility to understand what the person would like. Okay. So when I recommend stuff, I keep that in mind and I put qualifiers if it's not for a certain person. The David Mitchell stuff, I know people love that stuff, yeah. but it is not easy to read. Yeah. Okay. And it's not like I don't like things that are uneasy to read, but I don't find it satisfying. Yeah. So I would never recommend that book. Speaking and there's a lot of stuff that gets reviews that, yeah, I know it's about a band, but that's not the style I like. So what yeah. I do is I am constantly going through reviews, looking for what is great. I only have time for great. And then I will cross it with Amazon reviews and other reviews, see if it qualifies. If it's interesting, or if I'm reading an article and somebody mentions a book, I say, okay, then I will download the sample chapter. There's a lot of stuff I start immediately say, this is not my style, I delete it, okay? But there's other stuff I stay with. That is how I find my stuff. I have to go on my own personal journey. You ever read shit about the music business? I mean, I, I once read that book, uh, Hitmen, um, by Frederick. Hey, Hitman is an Hitman is an excellent book. Uh, it's the best one. Mansion on the Hill, on the Hill, is another great one. Most of the books since the turn of the century have been about the disruption in the music business. And having lived through that, there's certainly nothing in those books I don't know. And it would be a very young person who might be interested in that. There's a really good book about ticketing called Ticket Masters. And I know these people, but it's not that readable a book. The content is definitely there. So just going back to a point I was making earlier, the number one criterion in writing, number one, is readability. Mm -hmm. Second, Content is secondary. So all these people with their flowery sentences, whatever. And then there are other people. Plot. If you're writing fiction, plot is key. It's a story. And when you look at the highfalutin in New York, I remember Claire Massoud was pissed off. She wasn't, you know, people around, she wasn't nominated for an award. Yeah, I read that book. <laughs> the point is, I was so concerned about the style of writing that plot was secondary. Well, authors and nowadays it seems like authors are if you you know if you spend time on Instagram and Twitter, you know, we talked about this on the podcast, they're becoming their own, you know, persona. Whereas, you know, I'd imagine Philip Roth could have walked around lower Manhattan in the 70s and not many people would have known who he was. But nowadays, Philip Roth would, would have to have a million followers. He'd have to be posting fucking stories. So it's interesting, you know, with the oh, I see your face. Well, you know, with the advancement of technology, how it's also affected the medium. But if we can, I just want to get back to just where you first started, and if you don't mind me asking, you know, you have an encyclopedic knowledge of the music industry, starting when you started writing about it from 1986. Two questions. One, do you ever have plans to release a, a compilation of all the letters in some form? Um, and two, are you ever going to write a book? I would never write a book. One of the most ridiculous things of all time. People know if you have a calling to write fiction, go for it. If you think writing is a difficult process, stop, okay? What people don't realize, we have a very fast-moving society. You probably already turned this podcast off. Okay, people say kids today have a short attention span. No, they have incredible shit detectors. Yeah. Something they'll like, they'll binge 50 episodes of some TV show. But they'll say no. So you spend years writing your book. Yeah. And it's usually over in a day. 
Okay. Even the biggest authors say, well, this one isn't that good. Um, uh, the one about wrote the famous book about the motorcycles in Spain. She wrote a recent book. They even excerpted it in the New York Times. Complete stiff. My goal is to be interacting with the audience on a very regular basis and be immediate. I don't have a desire. If I had a big desire, I don't write uh, fiction anyway. I mean, not, not a, no. I think not a fiction book. I'm saying an insider's book. No, no. I mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to write a little topic. Take you know. Let's put it this way. <laughs> I know these people who write these books yeah. that are reviewed in the New York Times. about music books. Yeah, I remember one of the famous ones. He's a rock writer. I'm on the phone with him, and he said, "I said, well, how many copies did it sell? Under ten thousand, but we're coming out in paperback. Probably sell another five thousand. Yeah." If I reached under 10,000 people a day, I would stop. Course, I would yeah. stop doing what I'm doing now completely. I'm not you in call, it. You what call people it don't understand if, if you're an artist, the number one criterion, forget Gene Simmons is completely full of shit. <laughs> um, you can see me debating online, but oh, I did. I, again, I, I know okay, you but some, the yeah, point but I, is you want to reach more people. Yeah. And people don't understand, your friends and family will always say what you're doing is great. The question is, someone who has no relationship with you, will they tell another party to experience your art? If not, you need to either get better or change it. Mm -hmm. So, people don't understand. People don't understand what writing a book is, okay? They put everything in. The key is what you leave out. Because it's got to be a story. Most people don't know what writing a book is like. They have a cover and they put it together. Not a week goes by that I don't get a book about the music business. <laughs> Almost all of them are unreadable, but the worst are the self-published ones. They think if they put all the information in there, it's a book. But who the hell would read that book? And with books, it's a lot different than music. I write a good, I write a riff on my guitar. You're going to tell me within three, five seconds whether it's even worth pursuing or whether it sticks with you. In a book, authors have, we have to get them first sentence, the first paragraph, the first page. And if you, I mean, it's so easy to just pick up a book at a bookstore, read a sentence, put it down, like, fuck this, I don't want it. And the author spent five, six years writing that uh, book. You know, once again, and as I say, if I haven't pissed off everybody in the audience already, <laughs> I'm going to do it now. I don't do it that way at all. Some of the greatest records of all time have been written. The song's been written in less than 15 minutes, recorded in equivalent time. Yeah. Okay. The problem with so much writing is it's overthought. I work on inspiration. I immediately know because I, you know, if I'm hot, it's going to be enticing. If I'm not hot, the odds of it being great are low. So those people, you know, most people think, you know, this is, as I say, by time I'm through, I'm going to be the most hated guy on the planet here. <laughs> but the concept of, well, let me sharpen my pencils, get some coffee, let me rewrite. My goal is a page a day or whatever. I don't do it that way at all. Yeah. I get totally revved up turn a record up to 11 and it comes out and believe the other thing is you know when it's great mm -hmm. i have written stuff for so long the so-called ten thousand hours i'm never going to do something terrible but it's very hard to hit it over the fence have a grand slam okay when you do i am writing alone in my house 
I immediately know the response is going to be overwhelming. You know when you do something that well. So if you are focusing on the first sentence and the first page, you're already going down the wrong path. Mm -hmm. Do you release the letters right after you write it? Absolutely. Really? And I will write nothing in advance. That's uh -huh. part of the process. Uh -huh. it, so the process also involves being alone in a room and blasting the records to 11. Um, how do you choose what to write about? I mean, is it the news of pure the insp Pure inspiration. Mm -hmm. um, how, what do you mean? I mean, but now we're not, you know, the music industry is not dead right now, but the live business is pretty dead. What's inspiring you to write about the music business right now? I mean, well, it's I don't write turvy. solely about the music business. I know I you write, write about books, you write about, I write about my life. You, about you know, everything. right now it's uh, streaming television is defining the, uh, the, uh, culture. I watched this show called the Bureau from France and the second season is considered to be the best French television of all time. I'm not sure I agree with it. It's another show I recommend called Spiral. The guy has a way of building tension that's unbelievable. But I didn't want to write about it till it's over. Okay. There were a couple of times I was really feeling it. Mm -hmm. Now I don't feel I'm not writing about the bureau until I really feel it. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise it's just information. Mm -hmm. But you know, I mean, if you I have a zing to it, if people can feel my passion, if they know what's going, then they're interested in reading. Whether they like what I have, to be what I have to say or not, that's a completely different issue. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, are you going to just write till you can't write anymore? I mean, that's the plan. I mean, do you have any end goal for this? It's just you just keep doing it. It's just something you love to do, right? I mean, I don't see how you could ever till I doing can't it. do it anymore. Yeah, how can you ever stop be able writing? to do it till I die? Person doing this, and I mean, again, like for people who are listening to this podcast and have not read the left sets letter, I'm, I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass, but you write about and you just say it like it is. And no one's really doing that. And again, you know, I know you infamously don't, you or famously don't talk about how many subscribers you have. Obviously, you have a lot. Um, I know Tom Marshall tried to get it out of you, but he. No, can't. the point is, we live in a world where everybody lies. If something, this, we're not in a physical sales era anymore. But if someone said they sold 100,000 independent records, maybe they sold 2,500. Mm -hmm. I'll use a, uh, you know, I know famous people. I could tell you lie after lie. It's, it's all complete horseshit. All I will say is, when I write something, more than six figures of people read it. Mm -hmm. um, what are you reading right now? I know you got some time and things to do. Uh, what's on your plate right now? Uh, I just finished this book that was overrated. Hold on a second. Let me uh, turn on and look at the... Because when you read on a Kindle, I must admit, a lot of times I... Uh, do you read multiple books at a time or just no, one book at a time? No, just one book at a time. And always, and, or I mean, yeah. it, it one, but you go back and forth. No, I understand what you said. I read this book, Oligarchy. Yeah. Really overrated. Before that, I'm a huge Curtis Sittenfeld fan. Her short story collections, you say it, I, whatever it is, you, I, you know, uh, you can find it. Phenomenal. Best book of that year. Gary Steingart, I'm not a huge fan, but the last uh, novel was the best thing I read that particular year. Did you end up reading Cirque? I know you talked about that with Chelsea Handler on that podcast. She was. Do I end up reading what? Cirque is C I R C E. Cersei. Uh, I haven't yeah. read that yet because it's really not my kind of book. I know it's yeah. something people love. Yeah. Okay. I read Fraternity. That guy is a pretty good uh, writer, but a children's Bible, a little bit. You know, in terms of if I'm going to recommend something, that's a little bit different from what I'm reading because all the stuff I'm reading is, not, you know, there's a lot of stuff people talk about that's just, 
you know. Well, do you find that? I, I really like Curtin Sittenfeld's uh, Rodham. I like Mrs. Everything. You know, uh, you know, I could go on and on with shit I've read. Do you find? I mean, you know, if you don't, if I could pick, ask a couple more questions, if you don't mind. Um, we were talking earlier in the podcast about the similarities between the record industry and the book and the book publishing world. I mean, do you see the same thing as that? Where you know albums are being put out all the time, pumped out, and hopefully you get that one hit that pays for everything. I mean, in your instance, is this similar in the publishing industry world? You know, there's so many fucking books that get published. Okay, and- let me talk for a second and don't interrupt me. Go I tell, for it. I would tell, I want to give my philosophy on this. There are the James Pattersons. Most of the other people writing successful books, i.e. they're reviewed well, the New York Times, the WAPO, they sell a certain amount. People cannot live off the income of those books. Almost all of them are college professors. An incredible number are part, have been taught in those factories themselves, the Iowa workshop, whatever. If you watch girls, where the girl goes to the Iowa workshop, she doesn't fit in. That's my philosophy. They teach you to conform. I am a big believer. Writers are born, not made. It's something that you come with, okay? Now, Mitsuka Uchida, the big Mozart pianist, she had an article in Newsweek. This point's 25 years ago. said, I tell all my students to try really hard and do something great. Because if you're great, people will find you. But very few people are great. The publishing business is similar to the music business today in that barrier to entry is non-existent. Everybody can self-publish. In addition... Everybody on the other side of the fence has everything available. It used to be if a band came to your town, another band might not come, so you go to see that band. Mm -hmm. So you're competing against the history of literature. Make no mistake, the people at the pinnacle in music, and I'm talking about only recording streams, I'm not talking about the road and branding or whatever, people at the top of the publishing business, they're making a fucking fortune. Yeah, It's just there are very few of those. So if you need to write, and you are unique, there's probably some sort of space with you. But I can tell you about starving along the way. I don't think the average person would do that, okay? I'm divorced. I don't own a house, okay? And I'm doing very well now. But 25 years ago, I was really scraping by on the verge of suicide. I don't think most people are willing to commit that hard. I mean, I was talking to a famous musician everybody knows yesterday. He was saying, well, you know, after his first band broke broke up, he was couch surfing for a couple of years. Oh, yeah. I didn't have a dollar. Most people are unwilling to do that. So my goal is to scare everybody away <laughs> other than those who need to do it. How many times people told me, oh, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book. And they write the book. The publishers reject. They self-publish. Nothing happens. Yeah. Being able to write is easier than being able to play a few chords. But to write something that people want to read is something completely different. The other thing is conveying information is different from style. First and foremost, I am a writer. Subject is secondary. Okay. Whether it be movies, music, it's about the writing. And, you know, again, only because it's so fresh in my mind, that Michael Connolly podcast. I mean, this guy has sold millions and millions, and he's still writing every single day. He talks about it. It's something he has to do. 
Um, again, a lot of people, I own a dog walking business. That's how I'm able to live in San Francisco. I started my business. I was able to tour as a musician because I own my own business. I was doing the things that I needed to do in order to pursue what I wanted to pursue. Um, but yeah, it's not easy. And I, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's these things aren't for everyone. Um, and failure is a big part of it. We had Janet Fitch on, she got rejected, you know, a hundred times. And then she wrote white Oleander and, you know, it kind of blew up for her. Um, yeah, but you're not pissing off people. You're talking the truth. And that's what you talk about in your letters. I mean, yeah, why but is that a I, bad I guess thing? The other thing is a lot of rejection is legitimate. Of course. You know, just because it's like the 10,000 hour rule. I establish I'm a big skier. There's another book that is not as readable, though not hard to read, called The Talent Code that goes into the science yes. of the 10,000 hours. Yeah. It's 10,000 hours of hard practice. Mm -hmm. So I say, I'm a big skier. You spend 10,000 hours on the bunny slope, you're not going to be a world-class skier. You're challenging yourself. You're risking. That is how you build up the skill. So, you know, I don't want to say failure is a badge of honor because there are a lot of people who fail and deserve to fail. <laughs> okay. And they just see, you know, it's Silicon Valley. That's more about experience. Someone's been there and that's why, you know, they get another job. But this is, this is what I always say. People are not lining up to be garbage men. Okay. Honest profession. Actually in cities, hard to kind of get the job. Not, people not bad. Lining, People are lining up to work for free in the entertainment business. Mm -hmm. This is something that people want. So fucked up. Okay. It's kind of like you want to work at a major label. Okay. You think you know a lot about music. That's not what they need. <laughs> they need someone who can make it records and sell them. Yeah. Okay. So does your skill align. You read a lot of books. That does not make you a great writer. Although I've never found a great writer who didn't read a lot, whatever they're reading. You talk about Philip Roth. Philip Roth, his career was made by two things. Uh, shit, how come my brain's not working? The well, well, Goodbye book. Columbus won the no, National Book Award. No, no. It, it was the, the one at Portnoy's Port Complaint. Complaint. Portnoy's Complaint had a huge uh, impact in the movie Goodbye Columbus. Yeah. Okay? So, as far as you talk about Instagram and promoting, it's harder than ever to reach people mm -hmm. and success is slower than ever. But everybody, everybody on the planet is surfing voraciously, trying to find things they can recommend to others. So if they find it, they tell their friends about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is, that is what you have to do. As far as hyping yourself, there's an elite level of people who do that relatively unsuccessfully. I mean, they have a hit record, then they disappear. Yeah. But it's really about the work. I'm dying for people to send me great stuff. I heard from a household name earlier today. She started a book. It's a bestseller. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is a legendary book. She says, this is too flower for me. I'm stopping. She <laughs> is right. I have read that book. Okay. This is a book that, you know, everybody. So this person has a career, sort of a middle brow career. But the last book she wrote, I actually really liked. So it is hard, even if part of the audience likes it. But your goal is not to please the audience. It's to do something so fantastic that the audience will come to you. Bob, this has been a pleasure. Um, I hear my puppy barking in the background. Um, I always ask a couple of quick questions at the end. Obviously, people listening, sign up to the left sets letter. Um, again, and there's no determined date, right? I, mean, I was trying to look in your archives. It's just you, again, you're just popping them out when you feel like it, right? It's not like you release one a week. And Absolutely. Yeah.
Yeah. Um, and also you have one of the best podcasts I think available. Well, thank um, you. Yeah. Because you do it like, like Mark Marin does it. And the way I try, you know, I try to do it. You ask the questions that people, you know, want to know you break it down. I mean, you know, you, I listen to the Dan Wilson podcast. And for 45 minutes, I'm like, when is he going to ask about closing time and how they got signs and all that? And then the second half of that podcast, you even the way you even said it, you're like, well, how did you just get signed by AM Records? That just doesn't happen. And you got the story out of him. A lot of people, you know, those are the stories people want to hear. You know, as a dude who failed as a musician, essentially, you know, it was always the dream of like Tom Petty driving across the country, going in that phone booth opening up the fucking record labels, calling them up. Oh, we love your stuff. We're going to sign you. You know, you're, you're writing about music in 2021 where it's totally ass backwards. Um, I mean, I, I feel like we could talk for another hour about this, but I'm sure you got a whole lot of shit. Going okay. On. I got to ask you one big question. Though. Yeah. Yeah. You're quite obviously a Jewish guy. Almost definitely. Demeanor and look as I am a Jew myself. Yeah. The last name Johnson, explain it to me. Oh yeah. My father is not Jewish. So my mother's last name is Danzig. She's from the Bronx, grew up in co-op city. Uh, my father grew up in Bronx. Spell the last name. My mom, my mother's last yeah. name, Danzig. D-A-N-Z. Like just like the band Danzig. Same thing. Okay. Yeah. And she grew up in co-op city. Like in the TPs, you know, believe me, I know Co-op City. It's definitely, that's I where Freedom Land used to be. Yeah, I was born in Queens, and I grew up where they filmed new, uh, the Sopranos. Um, I mean, I literally watched them film the Sopranos. I mean, you know, again, the greatest television show ever. Um, I'm with you on that, it's literally. I'm, I'm trying to actually get some of the writers because I know they're doing the Talking Sopranos podcast. Yeah, um, again, for people who I mean, the Sopranos, is Bobby Bacala and uh, Michael Brioli. the best. I mean, talking about television being, you know, the art form of the times right now, you know, I'm, I'm big into the crown. I'm loving that show. Too um, slow for me. It's very slow, very slow. But, you know, again, people don't realize the Sopranos really paves the way for a lot of this television. Yeah. But the reason the Sopranos is so great is I always give this one example. Meadow is in trouble. Okay. And his parent, her parents want to discipline her. And they're afraid of disciplining her too hard. Say, you come up with a penalty. Mm -hmm. And then she comes down sheepishly, sheepishly, and she says, oh, oh, yeah, you know, I think the way you can, you can take away my gas credit card. And they look at each other, oh, yeah. Then she goes up and calls her friends. She goes, I snowed my parents. They're clueless. That is life. That's why The Sopranos is so great. Yeah, and I mean, again, I grew up around those people. I mean, I could tell stories about... You know, my father almost bought a restaurant in northern New Jersey in 2003, and he tells a story about in the final meeting of the purchase, two dudes walk in he never met before, um, and they were introduced as, you know, Tony and, you know, Alfonso, and they were letting my father know that, you know, not only do you have to pay these people, but you also have to pay us as well. And it was enough to fucking spook my daddy, and he didn't get the restaurant. I mean, you know, it's real life. It's it, it happened. Um, and obviously, you know, again, we could do a Sopranos podcast, obviously. And the, I mean, the diet, the writing on that. I mean, Sopranos is just it's the creme de la creme. It's the creme de la creme. Um, I always ask this: the last question, where do you buy your books from? When you do, if you ever do buy books, any bookstores in SoCal, I, I you always like buy them via from Amazon via Kindle. Uh, so you have I mean, you haven't stepped in a bookstore in how long? I used to love libraries. I yeah. was famous for that. And uh, once you had the internet, a lot of that stuff became available uh, online, and that was very intriguing. I will go in a bookstore. The problem with the bookstore is what is promoted to the priorities of the companies. 
uh, in terms of hand-sold books, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's overrated. If you follow, if you know the story of Amazon, and there's a really great book on it called The Everything Store, they started with personal recommendations. They had human beings making the recommendations. Then they found the algorithms sold more books. The algorithms were better than the people. I am not saying the same thing about music because I think hand curation is really key. However, you know, some of the Spotify products are really quite good, but I tend not to trust third parties. I will, you walk into a store, someone is, most of the books people are very enthusiastic about are not my type of writing. Yeah. You know, if a book is more about, oh, the wordplay, the structure of the sentences, not my kind of book. I agree. Okay. But this is the stuff that tends to be promoted. In addition, bookstores have little. In, if you go to Powell's in is it Powell's in uh, or in Portland? Yeah, you go there. That's fascinating because they have all the out of print books mixed in with the new print books. Yeah. So there's certain categories of books like skiing or tech books. I love going there and looking for it. But the average bookstore has a limited inventory. There's more inventory on Amazon. I mean. You know, I've been on planes in South America downloading books. Mm -hmm. Okay. Someone told me about a book. I said, oh, you know, I know this book. This will be good for the plane ride. You can't, I have no problem with stores existing. I have more of a problem with the reverse. People decrying digital. It's the same thing where I have yet to find a young person saying, spending too much on screens, too much time <laughs> on screens. I got to stop. It's only the old people. Mm. Everything that is happening is happening on the screen. Yeah. I only wish we had the screen when I was growing up. Well, it's in, I mean, you're talking about growing up. I was born in 1987. I'm 33. Yeah. I, I, so I was of that last generation of walking into Sam Goody, walking into Tower Records, buying CDs, you know, walking in. And if, you know, the last, to put it in perspective, the last physical CD I bought was the Fleet Foxes first album at a Starbucks. That was the last CD I bought. And that was 2009. Something like, but I mean, you know, so the bookstore, it's still there. It's something, you know, we as writers, people, you know, I saw my book on the shelf today and you know, that's pretty fucking cool still, you know, I gotta tell you, I'm stuff. sure I own more vinyl records than anybody there. And I sold a great percentage of my CDs before I did that. I guarantee I had more than anybody. Uh, I bought multiple computers from selling promotional CDs. Streaming is better than all of them. Yeah. Everything is at your fingertips. You can take it around the world. In terms of payment, what people don't understand is essentially 70% of revenue is given to rights holders on all these streaming services. And you talk about that a lot in your letter. They, they are not the devil. Yeah. Okay. The other thing is many people complain they're not making money on these streaming services who made money under the old model. The old model was you had to jump a hurdle, get a record label deal, and they would give you money. <laughs> Most people who are not being listened to on streaming services, they're not good enough to be listened to. Yeah. Same thing with books. There's a certain percentage of books that sell. We can argue what the genre is and to, you know, what to be. And you can say, well, you got a lot of this is crap. Well, to a degree, the audience wants to read crap. So if you want to write something more meaningful and you do it really well, maybe you have to understand the odds of lightning striking are low, but you can be fulfilled. And you see it in the, you know, again, I, I know you don't like talking about the jam band community. It's not your thing, but you see it in the jam band community where people, you know, they're talking, 
you know, if it's not fish, if it's not Grateful Dead, I'm not going to listen to it. But there's room for everything, and there has to be good things and bad things. Well, well, well I would, there's not room. You, there's not room for everything. You know, there are things I've seen the band twiddle. People hate them. <laughs> oh, no, I, no. I think I think they're pretty good. Okay, uh, yeah, okay, okay. No, the, I wasn't sure where is, that was going. There is a scene, but what people don't realize that scene peaked in the '90s. Could it come back? Could. Just like no, EDM, right. EDM has always existed. It's, you know, there are dance festivals now, but the peak was about eight to eight plus years ago. Mm-hmm. So the jam band you know, scene will exist, and once again, it's easier to make a living in the music business than it is writing books. By the same token, to write a book, you don't have to leave home. You don't have to buy all this gear. What was your first concert? I cannot remember. I mean, uh, my mother was a culture vulture. She recently passed. I was going to concerts at such a young age that I can't even remember. And I certainly went to rock concerts when I was in, you know, single digits. I just, you know, I just can't remember. I was six years old, Beacon Theater, Almond Brothers. My father took me. Yeah, when they used to do Peeking at the Beacon, that whole March run. Yeah, I, you know, the great thing with the Almond Brothers. They let you sit on stage. Mm. That was at the beacon. That was really pretty good. Man. I don't want to, you know, listen, the nature of my world is I have a lot of perks. I don't want to emphasize those. Yeah. But you have to ask yourself, are you a fan or are you a creator? And you don't want to wake up at an old age, say, I wasn't myself. Give it a shot. Yeah. But if you give it a shot, now more than ever, it takes a long time. And you have to take the people. I get emailed. Well, I'm going to do this for two years, and I'm going to go to graduate school. You can't tell it in two years. This is yeah. music. Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And you're on Twitter, right? Yeah, but I, you know, since I reach, you know, I got like sixty odd thousand followers yeah. on Twitter. I'm on reading Twitter, but I find posting on Twitter is pissing in the wind because you know people don't know. Isn't it crazy? It. I mean, I live in San Francisco, right? So I mean, I've, I've been at the heart of all this stuff. I've been seeing it happen. But it's amazing how quickly this stuff just. Yeah, it's as crazy. I say, I'm living on Twitter just to take yeah. the pulse of the country, the, yeah. the world. There's just so and there's certain shit. people who tweet. You know, tweet. The funniest thing is, since all the statistics are available, you know, the people have been tweeted six figures of times that have like you know fewer than ten thousand fans. How many people are actually seeing these? And things? that's what it is. You know, I'm not gonna go too too deep down the wormhole, but you know, when you're talking about bands that are on, you know, the the club theater level, you know, they could have 60,000 followers post a photo and it gets, you know, 50 likes. So really, what is that? I don't know. You know, it, that's a whole nother fucking conversation. Bob, thanks so much, man. Okay, Michael, till next time. Take care, Bob. Thank you.